Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm in conversation with a researcher who takes an interdisciplinary approach to investigating how large infrastructure systems can be designed and implemented to achieve decarbonization in a way that benefits both local communities and society as a whole. I also look at a call for people to be taught how to think like scientists, and I talk about a new and precise way to create atomic vacancies in a 2D material. I'm joined down the line by Emily Grubert, who is a civil engineer and environmental sociologist at the University of Notre Dame in the U.S. Emily is also editor-in-chief of the journal Environmental Research Energy, which is published by IOP Publishing, which also brings you Physics World. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Emily, your research focuses on justice and deep carbonization. Can you give us an idea of some of the projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think deep decarbonization is one of these things that is going to continue to have a lot of projects for a while, which is very exciting um, because we are making some progress. But a lot of the work that I do really focuses on how we make decisions about large infrastructure systems and particularly energy that do lead us both to this point where we're not further contributing to, to climate change, but also where we are taking care of people's needs and the environment. So the kinds of projects that I tend to work on are relatively policy oriented, um, but a lot of the time it looks like things like what does it actually mean to get electricity systems to be zero carbon? And what does that actually mean in terms of closing plants, opening new plants, making sure that labor forces are taken care of, all those types of things, as well as kind of attentiveness to legacy pollution issues and ongoing new pollution. So one of the projects that I'm currently working on is about what I call the mid-transition. This is a term that a colleague, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and I kind of uh, developed a, last year in a in a paper when we were really trying to figure out how people were thinking about this transition period between mostly fossil fuels and mostly not fossil fuels. And what we kind of determined was there's a huge amount of work on how to build new zero carbon systems. There's a huge amount of work on how to operate the system that we currently have, but there's not a ton of work on what exactly it means physically from a safety perspective, from a societal perspective to actually undergo that transition. We all know that that's something that we're going to need to do. But for issues like, you know, how do you actually transition from a system where most people are filling up a car at a gas station to something where most people are maybe charging a car or using public transit? There's not a whole lot of discussion about exactly what's happening in that middle part. Similarly, for a lot of power plants and electricity systems, there's not a huge amount of discussion of exactly how we close plants, which I know is a fairly significant conversation in Europe and a lot of other places. These issues, I think, are pretty global. The industrialized nations tend to see uh, somewhat different conversations because there's a lot of infrastructure that maybe needs to close, but even that is quite variable. So places with much newer infrastructure might have pretty different decision pressures than places with older infrastructure like the United States. That's one of the big things that I work on. The other one is a little bit more focused around the demand side of energy systems and more around climate adaptation, really thinking about how buildings can keep people safe by investing in deep efficiency. We talk about building efficiency a lot of the time as a way to save on your power 
car bill or your gas bill. But there's also an element of this where very, very efficient buildings mean that the grid doesn't need to be as big. They mean that maybe if the power goes out, you can stay safe in your house for a few more hours than you would if the building was less efficient, things like that. So I work a lot on thinking about how the building system really engages the energy system overall as well. And Emily, um, let, let, let's take a look at some of the, uh, I suppose, some specific research that you've done um, over the last little while. You, you recently published a paper in uh, Environmental Research Energy that looked at the feasibility of carbon capture and storage by the U.S. power sector under the Inflation Reduction Act. C can you describe that research and the, and the conclusions that you've come to. Is, is carbon capture a viable way to address climate change? Yeah. And that paper was in environmental research, infrastructure and sustainability, which uh, environmental research energy is brand new. And we're really excited to follow in the footsteps of infrastructure and sustainability. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Emily. I got the <laughs> no, journal no wrong. Problem. No <laughs> problem. Yeah. Uh, environmental research energy opens for submissions July 17th, I think. So we're, we're looking forward to seeing some of this. But yeah, so that paper on carbon capture was really intended to be kind of a rapid response to a large policy in the United States that focuses on paying to store carbon underground. The conclusion of our research was essentially because of the way that policy is structured, it encourages you to make CO2 and put it underground more than it encourages abatement. There's some systems where that's probably okay and that probably would lead to mitigation. In the United States power sector, though, what we found is if you make some assumptions about lifespan and some assumptions about how much these plants are running, the financial incentive at least is to run more and run longer which means that there might not be that much of a carbon mitigation outcome associated with power sector carbon capture and storage. I will say that there are some circumstances where carbon capture and storage is kind of the last alternative for climate mitigation. So particularly for things like process emissions from cement plants, there are not a lot of ways to capture that limestone-based CO2 other than a carbon capture system. Um, but Carbon capture and storage is one of these things where it probably is the only option in certain cases. And so it's worth figuring out how to do that for those specific cases. But it's not necessarily one that is going to be a really significant mitigation driver in all cases. In the U.S. particularly, the way that our policy is structured it's unclear that without some additional guardrails that it would actually result in mitigation. So I think my general take tends to be... Um, when we're looking at pathways to decarbonization, consider what all of the possible alternatives might be in the power sector in general, at least in the U.S. and probably other places that have older power plants. There are better options, um, but there are some industrial applications and some carbon removal applications where there might not be better options. And, and does the technology exist at the moment to, um, to, to do carbon capture or are the carbon capture systems that you're, that you're studying hypothetical? Uh, that's also a really good question. And it's one of these ones that a lot of uh, political investment in the United States is really trying to address. They don't really exist. We've had a couple of demonstrations globally on coal-fired power plant units. Um, so one is operating in Canada, actually. That's 
probably the one that's best known at the Boundary Dam plant. The United States had a few demonstration projects, including one down in Texas, but that has since closed uh, mostly for financial reasons is, I believe, how they talk about it. But we've never globally seen a demonstration on a natural gas-fired power plant, for example. And on some of these other industrial facilities, they're still very much pilot scale. The U.S., in addition to the tax credits for storing CO2, actually has some grants for um, for demonstration projects. And so we expect over the next few years that there will be some publicly funded demonstrations. But yeah, it is, it's one of these things where thinking about when it might be available, I think is also a big part of this conversation. And if we're really trying to think about decarbonizing electricity systems in the next 10 years or so, it's a really different conversation about what kinds of things are available relative to industry that we might be trying to decarbonize over the next 20 or 30 years. And another thing you've looked at um, recently, Emily, um, you've looked at emission emissions projections for U.S. utilities through um, to the year 2050. Um, how, how are those projections looking? I mean, I'm hoping that um, that uh, greenhouse gas emissions are going to be going down uh, over the next uh, few years in the U.S. Is that correct? Or have you found something different? That's certainly the hope. One of the things that, so I'm a life cycle assessment scholar, and for folks that might not be super familiar with that, it basically is a multi-criteria analysis tool that helps for decision support. So essentially, from cradle to grave, trying to determine what the various environmental and sometimes social or financial impacts might be. One of the things that shows up in life cycle assessment practice, and I promise I'll get to why this is relevant for that utilities paper in a second, is that we use marginal factors for the types of outcomes that we're looking at. So so if we want to know how much CO2 is being emitted by a system, we look at how much CO2 gets emitted by all of the components. So if you're using electricity, people use a static factor generally to say how much CO2 is there. Why the utility projections piece gets interesting is because this is an extraordinarily dynamic thing. So like you're saying, we do expect that emissions are going to go down over time, particularly with some policy supports. But if you're, for example, evaluating whether an electric car is going to have more or fewer emissions than an ICE vehicle, an internal combustion engine vehicle, for example, and you use current electricity factors without accounting for the fact that electricity is probably going to get cleaner over the next five to 10 years, you can come up with these answers that are not necessarily reflective of what's going on. Sometimes that's useful because the trend of what we see with electricity emissions factors tends to show that it's conservative to use current factors rather than future factors. But when you're talking about a policy context, actually having the ability to look at a few different scenarios for how those might change over time becomes really, really important to your policy conclusion and shows you where you maybe need other policies as well. So yeah, that paper shows essentially that if you assume that we don't build new fossil plants in the United States, emissions actually do go down quite rapidly, which kind of contributes to an overall argument that when we think about policy, really focusing on what new build might look like is very, very important. The existing stuff is also super important, but really um, thinking about making sure that plants do kind of retire at end of life maybe have some incentives to retire a little bit earlier than that in some cases, and then having them be replaced with clean energy turns out to be very, very important. And Emily, you mentioned earlier that you're, you're interested in how changes in, in energy use um, affect society, affect businesses. Um, you, you've also um, published a pace, paper recently that um, looks at the effect of large energy infrastructures on society and the environment. Can, can you talk a bit about that? 
Yeah. So there's a couple of paces that we've done that really think about big in energy infrastructures that uh, have these broader implications. One being, and this was in environmental research, infrastructure and sustainability as well, that was led by my student, Alex Maxim. One was really looking at how big infrastructure changes might affect people's tendency to move internally. So we're thinking about climate-induced human mobility quite a lot. This notion that you may move to a place that's safer climatically, or you may have to move because your place has become dangerous. And so really thinking about climate impacts in the context of what infrastructures are available and what infrastructures could become available was kind of the, the theme there. The argument being there are some places that are probably safer under climate change, but they're not necessarily safer unless you have the infrastructure to make them safe. But there are therefore some opportunities for towns to really invest in making sure that there is enough infrastructure for people and there is actually enough um, enough planning to make sure that people can be accommodated when they come. I think one of the other ones that was also in an environmental research journal was really looking at... Um, electric vehicle infrastructure and what that might look like and how we can evaluate those kinds of systems to ensure that we're taking account of all of the things in addition to climate change that are important when you actually start to start to make some of these big investments. Is there going to be an effect on people who live um, in places where it's no, no longer viable to, to generate um, energy uh, because doing so would be would produce lots of of greenhouse gases and 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 that's not something we would want to do i mean i'm thinking of you know people who who live in um isolated communities um you know let's say in parts of the us canada russia where um you know they're not sort of linked into a grid where they can have access to to green energy and uh, they use things like diesel generators etc i mean is that uh, an issue that you might look at yeah it's certainly an issue and it's something that i haven't looked at specifically but it does drive a lot of the work on like microgrids and a lot of these kind of renewable energy with battery storage types of technologies i think one of the really exciting things about renewable energy even just over my career so far is that a lot of these renewable generating technologies have become so much cheaper than they used to be i'm not saying they're free i'm not saying that there's not challenges in implementing them or challenges with the way that they operate but they are so much cheaper than they used to be that you actually can accommodate them in places with much lower resource quality for kind of acceptable costs. And so even places that don't necessarily have extraordinarily good solar or wind resources may be able to get enough out of those resources to create what they need. But yeah, this is also, I think, one of the reasons why, at least in the United States, we talk a lot about transmission development and especially thinking about electrification is something that really does drive deep decarbonization because you can shift things over to energy resources that don't emit greenhouse gases. Having the ability to actually move that electricity is pretty important. I know this is something that comes up in other countries as well, um, but it is extremely on the, on the minds of everyone, I think, looking at energy transitions in the U.S. right now. And you touched on the on the idea of of climate change driven migration. Can you can you speak a bit about your research on that topic? Yeah, and I think one of the the main things about climate induced mobility that came out for me during that project because I think we've we've all kind of or all of us that are looking at climate induced human mobility have heard about you know a tendency toward urbanization a tendency toward really needing to make changes in big cities 
what we looked at in in our study was really what it means for small towns potentially to transition into much bigger towns or small cities and what that actually means for some of the infrastructure that you need to plan for. So a town that maybe can get by with septic tanks and uh, the kind of disconnected networks when it's 800 people might not be able to do that when it's 50,000 people. I think none of the ones that we actually looked at were quite that extreme in changes, but we were trying to think about places where you would see these kind of qualitatively important infrastructure tipping points where you might need to think a lot harder about sewage systems or electricity distribution and things like that. I think one of the things that's really interesting about that study and also kind of the context of development over time is that towns that want to be good receiving towns probably can be somewhat proactive about that. I know we were looking a lot at the the Great Lakes region of the Midwestern United States in, in that context and kind of trying to think about what development had looked like previously as well. And there are a lot of stories from a long time ago, basically, about how the city of Chicago essentially became this very large city because it had a lot of people that were trying to make sure that it became a big city. So boosterism, things like this, were actually quite important to the development of Chicago. I'm not saying that we're necessarily going to see that with climate, but I think that it's an interesting reminder sometimes that if you do develop resources that are valuable for people coming in and for maybe having a larger town or something, that's a choice that we make. And it's not kind of predetermined just by the climate. Not all towns might want to do that, but there are opportunities, I think, to really be proactive about potentially having some towns grow a little bit, and particularly in places that have been depopulated over the last couple of decades. There may be quite a bit of room to do that in a way that also enhances quality of life for the people that already live there. Mm. And is there a tension between the the trend, at least in, um, I suppose, richer countries of, of people working remotely and, and therefore having the ability to live out into, in the countryside or in an exurb um, where maybe they would have a, a higher carbon footprint and, and require new infrastructure? Is that, um, uh, I mean, is, is that a, do, do you see that as a problem? In, in your research, um, or, or maybe this trend doesn't exist. Maybe people aren't actually <laughs> moving out of cities and, and working remotely in small towns. Yeah, I haven't looked into that specifically, but I will say that we hear a lot about smaller towns really being interested in broadband development. And this is one of these things that, yeah, it does support remote workers, but it also enhances quality of life for people that are already there. Just having better access to the internet is something that a lot of people want. In terms of what that actually means for carbon footprint, I think this is one of those very, very interesting cases where it really depends on what that development looks like. As you say, if you move to a really big building that is kind of uh, independently heated and cooled by fossil fuels and you drive a lot versus living in an apartment in the city where you're mostly using public transit or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a really big difference. But if you move to a place where you're maybe not driving at all or you actually do develop new public transit opportunities, things like that in these more um, more less dense rather, places, then you don't necessarily see those same kinds of issues. I think this is also one of these places where the multi-criteria nature of a lot of the analyses we do get important because at some level, if all you care about is greenhouse gases, you can use a massive amount of energy without emitting a whole lot of greenhouse gas. What that means for justice, what that means for some of the other kinds of things we care about are outstanding questions. But if it's just about CO2, 
even moving to a pretty big house with a lot of heating and cooling needs doesn't necessarily um, hurt you that much. So it becomes this whole other conversation. But um, I think this is one of the places where a lot of the types of analyses we do and a lot of the way that we look at the energy transition really become important from a research perspective because there's so many different pathways that account for different issues and really um, kind of elucidate different kinds of challenges that we might see. But there's not just one pathway to success and there's not just one definition of success either. And Emily, I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, wow, this sounds like really interesting research that you're doing. And, you know, I, I, I might consider pursuing a career um, in this sort of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary um, field. You, you did your PhD at Stanford University's Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. Why did you decide to pursue an interdisciplinary approach to research? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm always glad to see that there's more programs like this now than there were even 10 years ago. And um, so it's it's really exciting to see that there's some acknowledgement that the interdisciplinary approaches can be useful. For me, I had kind of come through an engineering background and realized that a lot of what I was focusing on needed additional methods. And so I did an interdisciplinary PhD largely to kind of add a lot of the sociological approaches onto the engineering stuff that I was already doing. I think that was incredibly valuable for me um, for a lot of reasons, but I think in particular, just realizing what rigor looks like across different kinds of discipline and then being able to choose a method that's really suited to what I'm doing has been helpful. I will say, like, as people are thinking about this, the way you framed this was people who want to work on deep decarbonization and things like that. I think that the interdisciplinary approaches can be exceptionally valuable when people are kind of topic oriented. And that's, I think, exactly the system when you're thinking about like decarbonization or energy systems or things like that, where there's a lot of different ways to think about these issues that come from very different methodological backgrounds. And so some of the interdisciplinary work can really expose you to those different methods. And what uh, what other advice would you give to a student who's interested in making a difference when it comes to addressing the climate crisis? Yeah, that's also a great question. I think the there's a lot to do. Um, we hear the phrase all hands on deck quite a lot in this field. And I think in particular, as we think about trying to get the world to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century, you know, that used to seem kind of far away, but it's about 25 years off now. It's at the what I tell people a lot is I won't technically be retirement age yet by then. So we're kind of in it right now. And so what that means, I think, for people that are trying to get into this is that fortunately, there's a lot to do, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective. But I think one of the things that I, I do tell people who are trying to get into this field is there's a ton to do. Find something that you like to do within that space, but also kind of keep in mind all of the other types of things that your work might affect. So if you're focused a lot on emissions, Think a lot also about some of the justice implications. Think about what this means for water systems and land use and for people at the end of the day. Because as we go through this transition, yeah, we're trying to get to minimal emissions, but we're also trying to make sure that people are taken care of along the way. And, and Emily, um, as, as you mentioned earlier in, the, uh, in, in our discussion, I, I sort of jumped the gun a bit on environmental research energy. So the... the <laughs> The, uh, the, the journal is currently, are you open for submissions at the, at the moment? We will be open for submissions as of July 17th is the current plan. 
Ah, okay, good. And and could you give our listeners a, a j- just a flavor of, of of what sort of research you're you're going to be publishing? Yeah, absolutely. So it's I think the listeners of this podcast are probably fairly familiar with IOP. Um, one of the things that we're really excited about is to kind of be entering into this cold open access society owned journal space with a journal that's really focused on big energy systems. So our scope and our mandate really is to look at large energy systems in the context of the climate transition. And that means thinking about mitigation, it thinks thinking about adaptation, but really trying to understand what it means for energy systems to develop along these pathways. So we're really interested in both supply side and demand side stuff, whether that's power plants or buildings. Um, Also really interested in global perspectives and understanding how these kinds of issues are different across countries or even within countries. So really hoping to publish work that advances the energy Energy transition in a way that is very much justice centering, but also gets us to zero emissions. Okay, great. Well, yeah, um, well, that, that's good news. Um, um, that means that all the the papers in the journal will be will be free to access, won't they? So that's correct. Once yeah. the journal is up and running, a, a, any listener can uh, can check out your research and uh, and the research of uh, of people around the world. And the the Environmental Research uh, Energy Journal it has a a page already on the IOP Science uh, website. So um, listeners, you can go have a look at that, and you can also have a look at um, some of the other uh, environmental research uh, journals that Emily's mentioned um, in the interview. Thanks so much, Emily, for coming on the podcast, and best of luck with your your research and also with uh, the new journal. Thank you so much. Since that interview was recorded, Environmental Research Energy has indeed opened for submissions. You can find the journal on the IOP Science website. Earlier this year, I reviewed the book, Well Doc You're In, Freeman Dyson's Journey Through the Universe, and had the pleasure of chatting with its editor, David Kaiser, on this podcast. That episode is called Freeman Dyson, We Explore the Extraordinary Life of the Rebel Physicist. Dyson's day job was that of a mathematical physicist, but he spent much of his career as a scientific advisor to the U.S. military. What struck me about Dyson's exploits as an advisor in the mid-20th century is the enthusiasm that he had for the idea that science could offer solutions for the problems facing society. When Dyson died at 96 in 2020, the public's trust in science was ebbing in a toxic environment in which a prominent British politician had declared four years earlier, people in this country have had enough of experts. In an opinion piece in Physics World, the University of Minnesota physicist and popular science author James Kakalios points out that people's suspicion of science is heightened when the scientific consensus clashes with cherished preconceived notions. If you believe that owning a large fossil fuel burning vehicle gives you a hard-earned freedom, then you may question the scientific consensus surrounding climate change, for example. Kakalios says that providing such a skeptic with more facts is not the way forward. 
Indeed, he points out that when information conflicts with our worldview, the more our brains reject it, something that is known as the backfire effect. So is there a way forward, or do we just accept that people will not always accept scientific evidence? Caglios believes that everyone should be taught to think like a scientist, and you can read his argument on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Why It Would Be Better If Everyone Thought Like a Scientist. Also new on the website is a research update that describes how a beam of electrons can be used to create atomic vacancies in a 2D material in a controlled and reproducible way. Thomas Suzy and colleagues aimed an electron beam at a 2D sample of hexagonal boron nitride in a near ultra-high vacuum environment. They were able to knock out either a boron or nitrogen atom without subsequent etching, a process that is caused by residual gas and prevents the controlled removal of individual atoms. What's more, Susie and colleagues believe that at higher electron beam energies, nitrogen atoms will be preferentially ejected from the 2D lattice, giving researchers even more control over the engineering of hexagonal boron nitride. And why is this important? Atomic vacancies in materials can have optical and electronic properties that can be exploited to create quantum devices such as qubits and sensors. And this work provides researchers with a new tool to explore the development of these technologies. You can read more on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Electron Kick Removes Single Atoms from 2D Material. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Emily Grubert for talking to me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when I'll be chatting to the executive director of an international organization that promotes the commercialization of quantum science and technology. But in the meantime, please check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which looks at some of the new technologies that could soon be used to create even more powerful computers. Host Andrew Glester is joined by three experts who look at how new paradigms, such as optical and quantum-based computing, could play key roles in the future. That episode is called Moore's Law in Peril and the Future of Computing. And you can find it and all episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.